Hi, I'm a higher ed CMO and I have a confession to make. I got into my higher ed career after starting my career as a journalist. And when you're a journalist, you're not necessarily thinking about the different personas of your audience because your audience is generally the general public. And shifting that mentality to a more audience-focused, persona-based approach to creating content is something that you kind of have to work on um, if you come out of journalism. This episode will benefit anyone who comes from a journalism background, PR background, marketing, anybody who is interested in learning how to create content that really helps you achieve your institution's goals. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Brian Piper, who is the author of Epic Content Marketing, the second edition. Welcome to Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, the podcast designed for higher education marketers. I'm your host, Jamie Hunt, and I am so excited to have this opportunity to share insights and inspiration. With Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, I'm designing a different kind of podcasting experience. With each episode, I'll be bringing in a guest for a deep dive into the challenges and joys we all face in higher education marketing. After each episode, you can join the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag HigherEdCMO. I would love to see this become like a book club, but for a podcast. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at at Jamie Hunt IMC. That's J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C for more opportunities to connect. I am so happy to be here with Brian Piper, who is the Director of Content Strategy and Assessment at the University of Rochester, which are two interesting things combined together. So I kind of want to ask you some questions about that too. But hi, Brian, how are you? I'm fantastic, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoy the the show and all the guests and conversations that you bring to us. So. Well, thank you. I'm I'm so happy to have you on. Brian is also the co-author for the second edition of Epic Content Marketing. So we're going to be talking a lot about content marketing today. But first, I want um, Brian to kind of tell us a little bit about your higher ed journey. So I started at the University of Rochester a little more than five years ago, I work in the central communications department. And originally I was hired to come in and just look at our content data and provide insights into what was working and what wasn't. And I pretty quickly saw that our uh, new center content, which should have been really a high driver of organic traffic, was only getting about 20% of its traffic from search. So. You know, we started a, a SEO project. Within the first year, we doubled our organic traffic. And so then they wanted me to start giving SEO presentations and keyword workshops across the institution. So that went very well. And then everyone started, you know, having a better understanding of how to do keyword optimizations. And then I started presenting at uh, industry conferences, higher ed conferences, and content marketing conferences. And since now recently with the, the Google Analytics 4 migration, we have kind of become a, you know, I guess a center of excellence to be able to advise other groups on, um, you know, best practices and what might be a better uh, analytics set up so that we can track things across the entire institution and just trying to help everyone uh, do better. Uh, so it's been a it's been a wonderful journey. I came from a defense contracting company where no one ever talked about what they were working on or <laughs> shared any ideas. So higher ed is just such a you know it's like a breath of fresh air because everyone is just so willing to share and talk about what's working and what's not working. Nobody's saying things like "if I tell you, I have to kill you" or anything like exactly. that. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's the fa- my favorite part about about higher ed. I am super intrigued by director of content strategy and assessment. I love the combination of those two things. How do you, was that what your title was originally when you started there or how did you, how does that shape up? What does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's the content strategy tied directly into the insights. So the insights all come from 
you know, qualitative and quantitative data and strategy. Everything's informed by strategy. It all goes back to that. It all goes back to who you're talking to, who your audience is. So it's really all about, you know, looking at the big picture and trying to really see, you know, the, the forest for the trees because, we can make all sorts of decisions about things to change in our content and what to try and new tactics. But if it's not all rooted in your final goal or your, you know, final strategic objective, then it doesn't really matter mm -hmm. why you're creating that content or who you're putting it out to, if it's not helping your users help you reach your goals. I absolutely love that. And I think about, you know, having an end goal is sometimes seems like a totally foreign concept in higher ed. It's like, we just produce content because somebody asked us to, or fill in the blank. Did you have to do any sort of cultural shift at your institution to start thinking about it in a more strategic way, or were they already on that path? So a lot of the leadership within my department knew that we were creating a lot of content that didn't necessarily have the impact that we wanted it to have. But they had difficulty telling deans and researchers and faculty that we can't make a news story out of this piece of content. So that was part of what they wanted me to do was really to look at the data and figure out, well, these stories just don't work. These shouldn't be news center stories. These should be, you know, a social post or just a department mention in a newsletter or something like that. So I think that was part of the shift was getting people to recognize that, Everything isn't a story. Uh, right. Some things are, are just, you know, different news that you release to the very specific audience that it matters to. Yeah, that's how, did you have to do a lot of education across campus on that? Or were people just hungry for that shift? I think a lot of people were, were hungry for that. And I, you know, I, I see that in a lot of brands, a lot of institutions that I, I go and, and work with or talk to is that they're so focused on producing so much content because they know they have to get all this out to all these audiences and everybody should know this. But until you really start looking at what strategy you're supporting with this and what users you're helping with this content, if you can't connect those two things, then it's probably not something you should be spending your time on. That makes total sense. It makes total sense. And in my almost 19 years of higher ed, I feel like Every time I get to an institution, it's always this like, we're just churning stuff out and maybe it's getting 30 views or something like that. It, it's exactly. just not working. Yeah. And until you really start looking at the data around what types of content they are and you look at how much time it takes to produce those for those right. 30 views or fewer. Yeah. It's really disheartening to the content creators. But then yeah. when they can create a story that gets 20,000 views in a month, that you know, really makes them inspired to keep doing more of that kind of work. Yeah, absolutely. I imagine it's um, a morale boost to actually have your content read or yes. viewed or whatever, you know, because content's not just writing, right? Like That's not all we're talking about today. Um, so tell me a little bit about the book. What inspired you or how did the book sort of come about? I know it's the second edition. So tell me a little bit about that. So uh, before I got into content marketing, I was a website developer and not a very talented one or a good one. <laughs> not very happy. It wasn't fulfilling to, to create websites. Um, but, and I worked with some very talented developers. And so most of the time, if there was a, a lull in the robotic repetitious work that I could crank out, they would say, well, why don't you just go and do the, that web positioning stuff that, you know, you have to play with the content to make it rank on the search engine. So that was back in 96. I started doing that. So I got very good at doing SEO. And then in 2014, I read the first edition of Epic Content Marketing, and it just opened up my eyes. I was amazed at the idea that you could tell stories and convince people to trust you and to listen to your opinion. And so, you know, I just immediately got into that. I, I went right down to the vice president of marketing at the company that I was at, and I said, you need to hire me to do your digital marketing because content marketing wasn't a thing in 2014. And she did. She gave me a chance. Um, within the first year, we doubled our organic traffic to our website. Um, wow. And so then that led to, you know, eventually led to me getting the job at the University of Rochester. And within the first 
uh, two weeks that I started, I convinced them to send me to Content Marketing World, which was Joe Polizzi's um, event, and he was the one that wrote the first edition of the book. So I tracked him down at the event. I took a selfie with him. I thanked him for writing the book and changing my career path. And then I did the same thing every year for uh, the next five years. And then I started speaking at the conference and presenting there. And so then Joe and I got closer. And every time I talked to him, I'd be like, so Joe, when are you going to do a second edition of Epic? Because you know, it still has Google Plus in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good content still, but it's dated. Um, and so then a couple weeks after uh, Content Marketing World 2021, we were in a Slack um, book club chat room. There were probably five people in there. And Joe was in there talking about his last second edition of Content Inc. And I asked him again, I said, when are you going to do a second edition of Epic? And, you know, I, I think, you know, I'm looking forward to you doing that. And he said, co-author it with me and, and we'll do it. So I said, absolutely, I will. So we, we jumped on that journey and got to work together with him on, on figuring out what to update and what had changed in 10 years and got to talk to all sorts of incredible influencers and content marketers about what they were doing. And it was just such a change in you know, the structure of the book from it was first written when content marketing was just an idea and there weren't really very many good use cases. And now in the second edition, there were so many just fantastic examples of this, you know, strategy just working so well for, for so many different brands and, and content creators. So you really played the long game. <laughs> you, you, you started out. I, I hope listeners hear this and think like, shoot your shot, go up to that person at the conference, make an introduction, make a connection, because look at how this turned out for you. This is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about, you know, finding those opportunities and looking for those open doors. Hey, y'all. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO. I want to take a moment to thank my friends at MindPower who are making season two of this Enrollify podcast possible. MindPower is a full-service marketing and branding firm celebrating nearly 30 years of needle-moving, thought-provoking, research-fueled creative and strategy. MindPower is woman-founded and owned, WBENC certified, nationally recognized, and serves the social sector, higher education, healthcare, nonprofits, and more. The MindPower team is made up of strategists, storytellers, and experienced creators. From market research to brand campaigns to recruitment to fundraising, the agency exists to empower clients, amplify brands, and help institutions find a strategic way forward. You can learn more about their work in the world by heading on over to MindPower Inc. That's M-I-N-D-P-O-W-E-R-I-N-C dot com. And be sure to tell the crew that Jamie sent you their way. That's incredible. And the book is incredible. There is so much great stuff in here. There's everything from, you know, building out personas to how do you assess all of this to, you know, everything in between all of that, all of the channels, all of this. This is a ton of work. And I, you told me before we started recording that you did this in just like a matter of a couple of months. I can't even imagine the heavy lift that was. Yeah, it was, it was a ton of work. I mean, and when we first started, you know, when we first started talking about doing it, we were like, well, you know, we're just going to have to update some of the the stats and, you know, get some new use cases. And then when we actually started the writing, we're like, well, it's been 10 years. Let's just throw it all away and start from scratch. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then, so we started coming, coming up with a, with an outline and a framework. And as we were doing that, we kept looking back at the book and saying, oh, well, this, you know, this is still very valid, very relevant. All the strategy stuff, all the, you know, the, the examples that we had in there um, all still worked. The content marketing strategy, you need all of those things. Um, but, you know, so we, we condensed the first book down into about a third of what the second edition is. And then we added in all sorts of new information, you know, updated everything about the way that they're building personas. We talked to Adele Ravel at Buyer Persona Institute, and she's like, yeah, in 10 years, we have completely changed the way yeah. that we create personas and our strategies around those. And then we added in all sorts of information about, you know, using all the data and content optimization. And then the last third of the book was all 
new stuff. It was, you know, AI and Web3 and community and super fans. So it was just fascinating get to, getting to talk to all these people who are doing all these things so well. That, that's incredible. I The book isn't geared necessarily toward higher education, but I think there's a ton of stuff in here. And I think in higher ed, we often don't learn enough from non-higher ed things, right? Like we're often very insular, only going to higher ed focused conferences, reading higher ed focused books. But I think that that this is an example of something where I, I hope that listeners will read it. And I'm, I'm not getting paid to do this podcast episode, I should say. It sounds like a, a heavy ad, but it is not. Um, but I think it's really helpful to learn from business leaders in other industries and to stay sharp in our craft. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, the marketing philosophy and strategies are all the same. It's just sometimes, you know, our, our audiences are much more varied than you get in a lot of B2B or B2C companies. But, you know, a lot of the tactics are the same. A lot of the implementations are the same. And certainly, you know, the lessons learned and being able to look at the data and figure out what's working and what's not working, um, very different. And working with different uh, departments and schools and groups across the institution, you find some groups that are very focused on delivering on goals and they have very, you know, set goals, um, advancement admissions. They, you know, know mm -hmm. what their targets are. But then there are a lot of other groups who don't really have those specific goals and it's just awareness and, you know, much kind of squishier goals that most marketing agencies or brands would not like that because they, they want to have something that they know they're, they're meeting this particular goal. So. so in the book, you write about the six principles of epic content marketing. What are those principles? So these are things that you need to do with your content that are going to make it valuable and useful. And that's really what makes, you know, just content creation different from content marketing. And in content marketing, you're trying to give your audience useful, valuable information that's going to help them solve a problem with the end goal of eventually having them take some action that will help you reach your goals. So, you know, enrolling or donating or, you know, uh, getting, you know, coming into to work for you or uh, all those different things that we're trying to get them to do. So you have to think about kind of these six principles set you up to do that. And the first one is you have to fill a need. So, you, you know, your content has to answer some unmet need or question that your customer has. It has to be uh, useful like more useful than just what you offer as a product or a service. And, you know, you're giving that away to them for free. So that's helping build that trust that you want to create with them. Um, and then the, the second thing is to be consistent. So creating some sort of content that you can put out on a regular basis. Now it doesn't have to be all your content doesn't have to be delivered on a regular basis, but if you say you're going to deliver a daily newsletter or a weekly newsletter, your users will come to expect that and they'll expect it to be on time. Um, and, you know, whatever you commit to, you should deliver because as soon as you miss a day, then you're going to start wearing away at that trust that you know, people are starting to build with you. Um, and then, you know, one of the big ones is just to be human, which as higher ed institutions sometimes doesn't come as easily to us. It's, it's uh, sometimes people want to like take a step back and not add too much, you know, authentic voice or personal voice into the content. But that's what people are looking to connect with you. They're looking for that brand voice. They're looking to, um, you know, find out how they fit into your environment. And then having a point of view is is another very important principle because i mean otherwise if you don't have some sort of point of view if you don't take a stand on issues that are important to you you're going to alienate people within your group um and and they're not going to see you as uh you know as experts or as caring about these these issues that we should all care about so i think it's important that you you know you come across as human Mm -hmm. um, and then I think one of the biggest ones that, that 
especially brands have a big problem with, and a lot of higher ed institutions have difficulty with, is avoiding that sales speak and talking about yourself. Hmm. Because the more you talk about yourself, the less people will listen to you and Hmm. value your content. Because no one really cares about how great you are or... Uh, you know, all the different options you offer or all the different programs you have, they want you to help them solve their problems. Mm -hmm. Um, They want you to be able to answer their questions about what they're interested in. So, um, you know, and it's also talking in the language of your users. If you're talking to graduate students or faculty, you could use you know, more jargon and more intensive, uh, higher level um, language. But if you are talking with potential undergraduate students, you have to talk in a language that they can easily understand. And then I, uh, the last one is just to be, you know, strive to be the best of breed. So, mm. you know, your, your goal for your content is to eventually be the best in your niche, you know, whatever you're distributing, any content you're distributing, you should try to make that as valuable and as relevant to your customers as you can so that you're delivering that value to them. How does that look at University of Rochester? I think a lot of it is, um, it has to do with being very intentional about who we're creating our content for. So when I first started, um, let's say a a news story about some research that was just, you know, that just uh, happened, just had some great findings. The um, content officer would come and say, you know, here's a great story we want to do. I was like, that's fantastic. It's a great piece of story. It's a great piece of content. Who's the audience for it? And they would say, everyone, everyone is the audience. Everyone should know this. And I'd be like, okay, well, everyone's not an audience. Um, so we would we'd go through an exercise where you would have to pick one audience who, by taking some action after reading that content, would have the biggest impact on helping us meet one of our goals. Mm. So it's really trying to make that connection with your content about what's the point of this piece of content? What are you trying to get the user to do? Now, Every user that reads it, obviously, is not going to do it. Every user that reads it is not going to be your target audience. But you want to know, okay, my target audience for this piece of content is graduate students. So when I'm writing this piece of content, I want to think about Hassan, who is this graduate student who we just interviewed, and I am talking to them about whatever this issue is. I want to structure my language so it is a, a, a conversation between you know, me and them so that it comes across very natural. Um, it, it comes across as not sales uh, focused. And we're really looking to try to answer their questions or help them understand this you know, new finding and how it will impact them. So it goes beyond just, here's this great new research finding that we came up with. It's like, here's how it can impact you. Mm-hmm. Here's how you could get involved in projects like this. Here are the opportunities that, you know, are, are, that exist here that you could get involved with. So I think this is going to tie back to my confession a little bit, which is that when I first got into public relations, marketing, higher education, um, I was coming from a journalism background. And as a journalist, your job is to tell the story for everyone, right? right. Especially if you work at a, a, you know, a newspaper, right? Um, Or any sort of non-niche Uh, media outlet. And I know because I have done a lot of hiring for content creators that a lot of us come from a journalism background and our natural instinct is to write for every person. And I think that one of the, the things that we have to reframe our thinking around and listening to you talk about this and reading the book is thinking about that specific audience member or that specific audience that we're trying to reach so that we're telling a story in a way that reaches them. And for those of us who came from a journalism background, that's definitely a shift. Um, Or at least it was, you know, I was last a journalist in, I'm going to mumble here, (laughs) 2001-ish, I think was, no, 2003, I think is when I left journalism. Um, And 
So when you were 16? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was 12. Come on, man. Um, yeah. Um, but, but, you know, it's been a long time. So maybe it's changed in journalism because I know like all the pressures and blah, 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 fill in the blank. But but that's a big shift for for people who were creating content for a general audience to start thinking about it from a marketing lens. And have you encountered that with people that are maybe coming from that same background? Absolutely. And I think a lot of it goes back to um, the editors that you work with who can um, help craft the idea behind the piece. And as they're reading the drafts, they can say, well, how, how does this really help your user? How does this really help the target persona that we are writing to in this piece? So I think, you know, just kind of easing that out of the writer over time, consistently, piece after piece, you know, it took, I'd say it took probably a good six months or so before we didn't have to do much. Uh, you know, they would come to us and they would know mm. who the audience was for this piece. They're like, oh, this is a more technical piece of research. This is definitely a graduate student, you know, focused piece, or this is, you know, for other potential researchers that we want to get in here or faculty that we want to bring in, or this is a great piece for undergraduates. And I think it's, you know, just changed the way that they were, were thinking about the content that they were working on. Well, and I'm a big proponent too of, you can repurpose content for different audiences on different channels. So you can do your interviews and your um, gather all of the stuff for your storytelling, right? But then when you get into the different spaces or with the different audiences, then you can shape that content for those different audiences. So a research piece that's maybe geared toward like a scientific audience, like maybe you're trying to attract faculty in a specific discipline or something, you know, that can be really sort of high-minded, um, a higher reading level. But when you're, you can reuse that same content to attract undergraduate students and their families, but it has to be reworked. It can't just be read right. this like, you know, really yeah. high level, yeah. right, right, right. Um, research hear Mr. 16 year old, <laughs> like right, exactly. understand this in the same way and yeah. repurposing that across channels too. Like something for Twitter is going to be totally different than a podcast, for example. Exactly. Right. Absolutely. And, and really writing for each of the audiences and for each of those platforms, you can adjust, you know, repurpose any content for any of those, as long as that's the right target audience for that content. So from your perspective, what are the most important elements of a successful content marketing strategy? Yeah, I think it all it all goes back to really focusing on that audience first. I mean, it's all audience and strategy, right? We say it all the time, you know, your your customers don't care about you. They care about their problems and and so you have to intentionally make the connection between solving the audience's problems and helping you meet your strategic goals. And it's, you know, it's the tactics that you choose and the tactics that you employ to connect those two, to connect your audience with your completion of your goals um, that really determines what data you need to be looking at and what metrics you need to be measuring to see if you're making progress towards that goal. And if, I mean, a lot of times we'll try something and it doesn't work, but if we weren't looking at the data, we would know that it's not working and that we should stop doing that. So. And looking at the data, I, I imagine you're using a lot of different tools to do that. Yeah, lots of tools across lots of different platforms. But a lot of times, you know, the, the best tools are oftentimes the ones that are provided with the channel. So our social data, we pull that. We don't have any, we have, well, we have a few third-party programs that we use. But primarily, we'll pull those directly from the platform. But we take them out of the platform and we put them into, uh, you know, Google Sheets or Excel so that we can then manipulate the data, track it over time, figure out what, you know, metrics are going to work best to help us figure out um, what's working and what's not. And we'll oftentimes, like, we pull out all our social data and then we tag it by, uh, you know, which strategic uh, initiative it's supporting, which audience it's focused on. And then we look at all of those across the channels to see which channel is working best for which strategy for which audience. So it's, it's very helpful, but if you were just using the, you know, native Twitter analytics, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to get that. Mm -hmm. 
What role do you see storytelling playing in content marketing and how can universities effectively use storytelling to connect with their various audiences? Yeah, I mean, I think I think storytelling is critical for connecting with people. We love hearing stories. We love being pulled into stories, feeling like we're part of it. And I think especially in the university, you know, any, any higher ed environment, there are so many stories uh, across all the different audiences. Um, and I think we have so many opportunities to get, you know, students to tell their stories, faculty to tell their stories and really humanize them so that, you know, people reading that content can really connect with them and, and understand how that, that, you know, that could be them. So I, yeah, I think storytelling is a, a fantastic way to communicate. I give a workshop on building integrated marketing communications plans. And one of the things I talk about is that is storytelling is how we remember information. It's how we um, connect with information. You know, back before there was the written word, that's how people would remember the things they needed to to survive, really. And then you had traveling bards who were coming and, and sharing information through storytelling. And it's one of the most basic things to being a human, I think. And I think sometimes we forget about that in our writing of press releases about, you know, X person was hired and this is their background, right? You know, a lot of times we have to do those. Nobody reads those. Right. Right. <laughs> no. right. No. Yeah. Maybe we can just get AI to do those pieces of content. <laughs> so we can focus lovely? on the stories. Yeah, I did have ChatGPT write me a bio and it had everything wrong. So Yeah, it doesn't do well. Bios and eulogies, it doesn't do it. <laughs> That's interesting. I hope I don't have a use for that anytime soon to try that, but that that is interesting. One of the things that really jumped out at me in the book was that you talked about the engagement cycle. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that and how you see that playing out in higher education marketing? Yeah, so I mean, traditionally in... Uh, you know, a B2B, B2C organization, the engagement cycle is where um, sales intersects with the customer journey. So it's really figuring out, you know, that that's how you build your funnel. So you're building your funnel with content marketing. Now in higher ed, we have so many different points of engagement with so many different audiences. So not only do you have to be thoughtful about, you know, what strategy each piece of content supports and what audience each piece of content support. But you have to think about where that content fits in your engagement cycle. So if you're just doing, you know, high level top of funnel, bringing people in, you want to make sure that, you know, any calls to action that you have on that particular piece of content aren't trying to push someone down to the end of the funnel, you know, Mm. don't, have a here requested more information about our chemistry program when they're just reading a research story about a new chemic chemistry finding, um, you know, point them to something else that's, you know, also at the top of the funnel or, you know, give them a couple pieces of content there before you try to push them down into that next level. So really just thinking about where all these pieces of content should fit in the user journey. And once you assign a piece of content to a spot within the journey, then you need to start looking at it to make sure that it's actually delivering on that. Maybe it shouldn't be there. Maybe it should be changed a little bit or molded a little bit, made a little more technical, dropped further down into the funnel. Um, so yeah, just trying to figure out, you know, not only where you're going and who's going to get you there, but what the steps are along the way. What are the road marks, you know, on on the journey? We've talked a little bit about that journey and talked about solving our audience's problems. And that just kind of reminded me about, you know, at a previous institution, we wrote some guides for like what, how to prepare for your, a college tour. What are some of the things to look out for? Um, how to do your, fill out your FAFSA, how to approach X, Y, or Z. And then it was this sort of like sneaky little, like, we want to drive people to our website and find, to find us useful, right? Because families all over are looking for that type of information, we might as well be driving them to us rather than, you know, some non-higher ed or some other institution. Um, But I I like the idea of like also some more subtle things like the the chemistry story that you were mentioning earlier. Um, Do you see like 
both of those as having value in the engagement cycle and and how where is it just different phases of that cycle yeah absolutely so you know that i mean that is exactly what content marketing is is you're just trying to answer the question that those users have they may not even be looking at your institution but you can be a valuable resource and eventually if they come there enough and get enough answers from you they're going to start thinking oh well i can trust this institution and they're helping me and they're not trying to just sell me and push me and recruit me. Maybe I should take a look at them. And, you know, a lot of our content, especially our, our new center content, a lot of it just links to other stories because we want them to consume more content. We want them to come in and say, Oh, wow, look, they do all sorts of research there. And then eventually on, on a handful of those pages, we do direct them down to the particular, you know, academic unit or, you know, over to admissions just so they can look around at the different programs that we offer. But I think it's, you know, being thoughtful about where you're putting those calls to action and offering, you know, sometimes we'll have two or three calls to action scattered within the piece of content for different levels of the funnel. Some people have been back here three or four times to get questions answered or to learn different things. So I think, you know, just figuring out how to direct the users in multiple different ways and knowing that you're talking to several different audiences and trying to give all of them something that's helpful, but your your primary audience always comes first, and then you can address the other audiences further down. When you're thinking about personas, I, how are you approaching developing those? I, I'm so interested in personas. So I love using personas, but I'd love to get your take on, on how you tackle that. Well, it was interesting when we, when we talked to Adele, she was, she was saying that they have really changed the way that they do personas. So they, they still enjoy having like all the demographics data. And she said that the most important thing is really understanding the decision making process and what Mm. those decision criteria are and understanding what problems those users are facing and trying to solve. So that's where we start whenever we're, you know, working on personas or, or discussing personas is w- what is going to change this person's mind to engage them and to, you know, get them to make a decision. Um, and so those are the things, those are the points that you try to hit and you try to work on you know, the, the, the emotions that are involved and, you know, the benefits of making this decision, the, the repercussions if you don't make these decisions. So I think just having an awareness of those decision-making criteria are, are the most important piece. And then after that, then you can start thinking about, um, you know, personalizing the, the personas, giving them names and uh, talking about, you know, what kind of newsletters they read and things like that. Those are nice to haves. And they give you a better sense of, um, you know, of who you're talking to. But I think, you know, some of the best kind of personas that are used are, um, you know, when you're writing an email to someone, you can start off with a student's name that you know, you know, personalizing it in a way that you actually have someone that you can connect to, you can envision. I think that's one of the most effective ways to do it. I'm thinking about, I had tasked someone at a previous institution with crafting some personas and doing some research and doing all of that. And they kind of came back with something that was super stereotypical. Like they had this sort of, you know, Katrina is a Hispanic woman who's close to her family. And it was like all these tropes about, you know, a, a Latinx woman, right? And then they had like, a, an African-American male. And it was just all these tropes about that. And then, you know, a white, basically like a white frat bro and all these sort of tropes about that. And it's like, I mean, yes, there are people who would fall into some of those because, but like that's super stereotyping people. And it's not really talking about their pain points and the problems that we're trying to solve for them. It's more almost just creating this broad canvas of stereotypes about your students and students aren't stereotypes. They're not tropes. They're right. individual people, but there can be some commonalities in what their pain points are. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, uh, when Warren Buffett writes his shareholder letter every year, 
he starts off writing it to his sisters because mm. that's the language that he wants to, to use. He wants to explain at a high level kind of what happened throughout the year without going into a whole bunch of detail or going into every decision in the process because he knows they don't want to learn, don't want to know that. So having that real person and connecting with those real people, I think, and that's really one of the best things about creating personas is that to create a good persona, you have to talk to those people, to those decision makers. And that's where you can connect with them and say, now I know what your problems are and what your issues are and how I can help solve those. Um, and then you have a real person in your mind when you're writing that content. I so I think that. that's the most, the most important thing. I love that mental image of picturing somebody that you're writing for, because I mm -hmm. think that keeps you honest. I mean, Definitely. yeah, I, I listened to the smart list podcast with, um, Will Arnett and Jason Bateman and Sean, I never remember his last name, but when they get to inside baseball on Hollywood stuff, they'll stop and say, Hey, Tracy, which is one of their sisters and like kind of explain what they mean by something like they have, they have a persona in their head of the average listener doesn't understand all the nuances of Hollywood. And so they'll pause and, and explain it to quote unquote Tracy, um, who's just somebody who doesn't work in Hollywood. And I think there's, we almost need a Tracy for higher ed with all the right? jargon. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm going to, I might adopt a Tracy uh, for that. Um, so Brian, what do you see as the future of content marketing over the next, you know, five to 10 years? As you said, the first edition of this book was 10 years ago when Google Plus was still a thing. You know, what are you seeing evolving um, as maybe there's a third edition down the road? You never know in 10 more years. Uh, and that was a, a great, uh, one whole chapter of the book is, is what is the future? We talked to all sorts of uh, influencers and and well-established content marketers. And pretty much they all said 10 years, there's no way we can even begin to predict what's going to happen. But just looking at what's going on with technology and trust issues in our society, I think we're going to see more and more emphasis on community and mm. on um, opportunities to build that trust and create those real personal human connections with people. I think users are going to be more interested in um, having brands and institutions take stands and really look at things like, you know, how are we protecting your data? How can we personalize experiences and personalize education for, you know, each individual uh, that's coming to, to pay us to teach them and to help them become better people? Um, and I also think we're going to see uh, education evolving uh, as we keep exploring new landscapes. I think the metaverse is going to have a, a dramatic impact. Um, I was at a conference last week uh, where a metaverse company was giving a presentation and they already have 150 universities who have um, virtual twins already created in the metaverse where they're already teaching classes and having students from around the world collaborate on research projects. So I think we're going to see a lot of things changing. Technology is certainly going to create some, some shifts. And I think our society's need for connection and trust is going to uh, definitely create all sorts of opportunities and challenges. Yeah. The way that AI in particular has evolved and when you mentioned trust, I think about, I think a couple of weeks ago, some photos were circulating of the Pope in various garb. And then there was um, some photos that were created by AI that looked incredibly real of Donald Trump being arrested and taken down by FBI agents. And I, I wonder how we're going to even know if something's legitimate or not. And I, I think that like veracity um, and credibility of our content is going to be even more important as we go into the future, it's a little daunting, but also really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think we're going to rely less on um, kind of these big amorphous brands. And we're going to start looking for people that we can connect with and trust as our sources of information, because we know when we go to them, they're not going to give us 
AI generated images and content. They're going to give us their real thoughts and real content. And we're going to be able to find what we uh, connect with and what resonates with us. And it seems like it's becoming more and more important every year for people to resonate with the values of a brand um, and to feel like their values are echoed in a, in a, the brand's values and that they're in alignment with that. And I just see that over the past, you know, maybe five to 10 years kind of escalate where people are choosing what beer they drink based on what they think the values of the company are, what clothing they wear. Um, and I think our institutions have a lesson to learn from that for sure. Definitely. Definitely. So what advice do you have for higher ed marketers that are maybe just starting out with content marketing or want to make a shift toward content marketing, but they might not have a big budget or a team that has a lot of expertise in this? Where do you think they should start? I always tell people to start small. Start with a small project, create a, a few pieces of content that really focus on particular users that really focus on answering questions and adding value and are really connected with your business goals. And once you have some of that, you know, quality, useful content, um, then you can figure out how to get that out there. I mean, we started off with a handful of SEO projects and we were optimizing a few pieces of content that students, uh, potential students seem to be gravitating towards. And once we were able to show leadership the increase in traffic to those pieces of content, then they were like, oh, well, this is something that we should probably be doing everywhere. Um, and we see it. Uh, I, a lot of institutions, University of Chicago created their podcast network. And now mm. they started off with just a couple of very niche, very focused podcasts of, of uh, addressing very particular audiences. Now they have a whole variety of, of podcasts. Um, and Purdue kind of did the same thing. They have you know, all sorts of segmented content hubs for all of their different audiences, uh, which I think is, you know, the, lots of different institutions that are really starting to embrace content marketing and really seeing the power of engaging with your, I mean, user-generated content, uh, UWE Bristol has a whole program for student content creators that teaches them how to be content creators and then lets them create content for the institution. That you know, is so we cool. We just saw Harvard and East Carolina University partner with Mr. Beast, who's now going to be teaching students how to be YouTubers, which is what students want to be. So why not figure right. out how to give them that content and connect with them with those creators? When I was at Miami, I was really excited because we had a podcast network that was, you know, just kind of decentralized, right? There were all these little podcasts and we were trying to kind of centralize them into, you know, something that was a little bit more easy to access all of that type of content. Um, but one of the things that we had was a podcast called Major Insights that interviewed students about their majors, why they chose that majors, what they were getting out of their classes, um, what some of their favorite professors were. So it's really useful content for any student, right, as you're thinking about a major. But then it's on the Miami University um, exactly. podcast network, and it's, you know, talking about Miami University faculty staff, um, Miami University coursework. So it's like this sneaky sort of way of this is Miami, but it was really useful information, and it was really, really popular. Um both on campus and off campus. Um, I, th I think podcasts are a little bit underrated in higher ed in terms of their ability to be a content marketing strategy for higher ed marketers. Yeah, and podcasts tend to be uh, an extremely effective way to engage, especially an existing audience. It can be challenging to grow a new audience with podcasts because there's so many of them, but the podcast content is a wealth of repurposable content that you can then use on all of those channels where it's much easier to build that audience. And uh, I, th I think you do an excellent job of it, of really figuring out best ways to uh, promote and engage using what you pull out of your, your podcast content. I'll say my podcast is like solely so I can learn from a bunch of other smart people <laughs> so that I can get better at my job. And then now it's out here in the world for everybody else to, to listen to, too. It's just a sneaky ploy to get to talk to people like Brian. Um, 
This is this has been fantastic. What resources do you recommend, um, in addition, of course, to your book, um, for people interested in learning more? Uh, Content Marketing Institute has just a, a wealth of knowledge. That's the uh, business that Joe started. Uh, Joe and Robert Rose started that, and uh, then Joe sold it a couple of years ago, and now he runs the Tilt. Uh, and that's also another great resource for, it's really focused on content entrepreneurs. For high ed specifically, I'm uh, in high ed web. I'm very active in that community. It's a, a wonderful community of people always just looking to share. And you know, we have lots of just open discussion groups. Um, yeah, that's probably my, my best recommendation for higher ed focused Hi Ed Webb is fantastic. Um, I, I was um, active with them back when that was more of my role, and it is just awesome people helping each other out and sharing their their wisdom and knowledge. It's a fantastic organization. Brian, where can people find you if they want to ask you any questions? I am on brianwpiper.com, and then I also am Brian W. Piper on almost all social channels. Awesome. Well, listeners, um, you also can find me, as always, on Twitter for now at Jamie Hunt IMC. That's J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C on LinkedIn, where I'm spending a lot more time these days. Um, Jamie Hunt. Um, also, you can find me on my website, uh, the, thehigheredcmo.com. Um, I would love to chat with you, and I hope that you'll engage in some conversation about this episode using the hashtag HigherEdCMO on whatever channel is your favorite or all channels. Brian, any closing thoughts before we wrap up? No, I just tell, you know, everyone out there, focus on telling good stories and make sure that you're connecting your users to your strategic goals and that you're looking at your data to make sure that everything's working the way you think it is. That right there in a nugget is a perfect summary of this episode and what you um, hopefully have learned. I hope you took notes um, and I hope I will see you again in a future episode. Until then, let's go bust some silos. Hey y'all, Zach here from Enrollify. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO with Jamie Hunt. If you like this episode, do us a huge favor and hit that follow and subscribe button below. Furthermore, if you've got just two minutes to spare, we would greatly appreciate you leaving a rating and a review of this show on Apple Podcasts. Our podcast network is growing by the month, and we've got a plethora of marketing, admissions, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks that are all designed to empower you to become a better higher ed professional. But Enrollify is far more than just a podcast network. Enrollify is where higher ed comes to learn new marketing skills, discover new products and services, and find their next job. We're a growing, learning community of 4,000 members, and we'd love to welcome you into the fold. You can access our free blog articles, newsletters, e-courses, and more, or purchase our master course on how to market a university with Terry Flannery at enrollify.org. We look forward to meeting you soon and welcoming you into the community. Again, you can subscribe for free at enrollify.org.